Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm an Asian-Canadian man who's about to talk about civil rights for black Americans in the 1960s. I'm ready. Who better than a white man and an Asian man, <laughs> Dave? And I'm the machine. I've got a lot of insight. I've got a lot of talk about here, Kyle. All right, uh, great. Lived experience. This is a podcast where a sentient <laughs> machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. That year just so happens to be 2018 this season. The machine still threatens our lives, of course, if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although, we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film If Beale Street Could Talk. You ready for this? I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. You know I love you, no matter what happens. I'm yours in your mind and that's it. You want me all the time. Honey, there's something I gotta tell you. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue this show since, you know, the machine doesn't help us pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there. We're going to be talking about Liquid Sky this month of February. So uh, you can and jump on over how? there. This is how you know there is a god. It's actually showing at a theater here in Calgary. Here Cal in Calgary, which is wild. It's crazy. So, yeah. Isn't that weird? I picked the right one is what we're saying. I'm a genius. You are a yeah. genius. Uh, Dave, we are now back here in the right timeline in the right oh, world story. after being right. thrown off in space and time for the past couple of seasons so what's it like being back with the fam it's great are we what year is it 19 1981 we're, we're, we're in 2023 that is what right. the current year is oh okay i thought we were in 2018 it would be no. nice pre-pandemic 2018 as we talked about last week was a good year for both of us i think no it's great it's great it's uh today as of this recording it's dropped down to minus 15 again here in calgary which yeah, is great like it's refreshing day. it's gonna be like yeah warm right? again tomorrow so. people are doing donuts on sheets of ice on the streets perfect i was um, actually driving home from downtown last night because you know i can drive again and i was going slow i, I want to make it sound like i'm some speed demon Oh, I've been in your car. You are not a speed demon. I, I apply my brakes and I slow down not at all. And when I go right through the intersection, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going through this intersection now. <laughs> well, it's like uh, this year's basically been freeze thaw in such succession that it's going to be like six layers of black ice. Oh, sure. You know, we're doing it again this week. Uh, people do tune in to talk about the weather, to listen about the weather here on yeah, this yeah. podcast. So. Well, the humidity, the dew point this morning. <laughs> yes, talk me more with the dew point. <laughs> I can actually see people stopping listening at this point. You can actually see the drop off. <laughs> Talking about last week, it was our first episode. We're kind of getting into the swing of things. A new year, new us sort of sort of thing here. Talking about 2018. Do you remember how important swingers was? I actually took swing classes after that. Oh, movie. Yeah. That yeah. seven months that swing dancing had a... <laughs> had a resurgence in the 90s. Um, a brief resurgence, yeah. Some clarifications slash uh, corrections from last week's episode this is from a few different people so i'm just going to collect them all and oh, three things wow. number one okay. number one we were talking about our history with like just the year of 2018 okay and we were talking about streaming services specifically and of course we didn't look any of this stuff up we were just trying to figure it out if so, we researched it we would not be doing this podcast because we would realize how stupid it is sure <laughs> so netflix definitely was like the leader yeah, in, yeah. in 2018 that Absolutely. that is that is true 
crime actually started in 2016. But it was garbage. But it was, yes, garbage. that's the thing. It hadn't really elevated. And I don't think it yeah. launched in Canada until like late 2016 or early 2017. So it was pretty new. Okay. And then we did say correctly that Disney Plus was not out yet. It would not no. come out until December of 2019 is when it actually launched. Yeah, close to pandemic. Good for them. Eh? Maybe they started it. So we get MCU, right? Well, well, we'll see here in real time this year, the prognosticators, and I think anyone that can see how the industry is going, there are too many streaming services. You're going to start to see people crumble, stop them, combine them, and you'll have your two or three options by the end of next year, I, I, I would assume. None of them are making money, Dave. But who pays for Paramount Plus? It sucks. I mean, I can't, I think because we're in Canada... It's like a plus minus. We we obviously have some restricted content, but because we don't have half the streaming services that America has developed, a lot of them do fold in and like Netflix Canada still has rights to certain films yes. that you wouldn't be able to get in the States and Criterion, you know, and there's a plus minus. There are some films that go the other way. So we'll see uh, anybody out here who's paying for stars and Paramount Plus and Crave and HBO. But are there people who do that, Dave? I know I see this graphic all the time about like, oh my gosh, if you pay for every streaming service, you'd be paying more than cable. Like, But who is? Who is doing that? You pick your two or three and that's what you pick. For someone who watches a movie at night, I would assume you. No, I have my Netflix and I have my (laughs) Disney Plus. Those are the two streaming services that I pay money for. Canadian money for. uh, Amazon Prime is like the sore spot for us. Every time I'm about to turn it off, I need a shipment. I need a shipment, Kyle. I can wait the extra day or two. (laughs) I don't care. I just don't care. Waiting two extra days for a shipment makes me want to vomit. We pay for one more. Oh, no. I I may share some. (laughs) Maybe an Apple TV Plus subscription here and there. Oh, we have Apple TV Plus, yeah, because we do the Apple Home. You know this. What is it called? One, Apple One. Last thing is that I made this very bold proclamation in the last episode about how a lot of modern blockbusters are teaching audiences to be stupid. Uh, That's what I said. I think that's fair. The other thing that someone wrote in, who I forgot to write their name down, so I'm sorry that I'm not giving you credit. It's not so much that it's teaching audiences to be dumber, although that might be true. It's that there's this new thing that in order for a movie to be good or like a great movie is something that you have to solve. Like you have to like, this is a reference to this thing. And like, if a movie doesn't follow these five things. Oh, like at a metal, meta level. Correct. Like an Easter egg level. Right. Like every, okay. Which is, I think why there's this pushback is like, if there's any type of plot digression that is not some big momentous revelation by the end, that's bad writing. When it's like, no, it's just, I don't know. (laughs) That's just what normal stories are sometimes. You can see that, that blowback of Glass Onion in some quarters actually about how, a lot of people claiming it is bad writing because it sets something up that it doesn't pay off at the end. I'm like, I don't, yeah, because it's, it's a red herring. That's how murder mysteries work. Like, I don't know. I, it's so oh, yeah. bizarre to watch people fight about things online. This is hypocritical because we have a podcast and we probably shouldn't. I hate that I turn on YouTube and every other video is like, what the ending of Glass Onion sure. really means. It's like, fuck off. That's what you watched. I'm not clicking on your video, but they have hundreds of thousands of views, I guess to this point, because maybe the cultural expectation is that- There's only one right way to read the ending of a movie. You can't have a conversation about it. Or I don't want to be wrong about it. Correct. And like we were just talking off mic, it's probably why we're all so fucking sick. Like just let it go, right? Watch a movie, 
have your own opinion, turn on your own podcast and talk about how the Eternals suck and then uh, find out who disagrees with you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Something else that some people have been having disagreements about, uh, we won't spend a lot of time with this, but I thought we should just quickly mention the fact that Oscar nominations for the 95th Annual Academy Ugh, Awards came out this week. It's all over my newsfeed. It's so yeah. annoying that I know about this. Everything Everywhere All at Once is the big leader. Has 11 nominations here this it's year. It's up to me. They would win. I don't know about Best Picture. There's been good movies. They should because it's my favorite. But yeah, Michelle Yeoh and uh, I don't know how to pronounce his Stephanie name. Stephanie Sue, I think is. And then Ki Huy Kwan. She's good. And Jamie Lee Curtis deservingly nominated. But I don't think they'll win. I actually, can I just say... Yeah. I like all the nominations except for the Jamie Lee Curtis one. Like, oh. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. I just don't think for that role, I would have had her take up a slot in it. But. Well, you know, it's hard because I don't respect the Academy. What constitutes a good performance? Is it one that I'm engaged in emotionally or is there some, you know, is there some checklist about sure, how many I emotions mean, were you able to portray? And, you know, were you, you know, I don't know. It has to actually go through three emotions. So unless it yeah. goes through three emotions, you cannot be <laughs> well, nominated. Because it's so arbitrary, isn't it? Right? Sure. It really is. I mean, there's that control with the lady that's been nominated for a movie no one's heard about, right? Andrea Rizembo, I think is her and name. And apparently she's a good actress. I, I don't know. I've never heard of her. I, this is on me. The name actually did not uh, register any bells in no, my head whatsoever. I've yeah. seen like eight of her movies and the reason why it doesn't ring a bell is she looks indifferent in every single one of those movies and sounds different mm -hmm. in every one of them. So it's like, oh, I just thought she was a different actress in all of these different well, that's, roles and performances. It's kind of like the sight and sound thing, you know, like if you think about acting as a craft, it's not going to be a blockbuster film because there are so many talented people doing so many fascinating tiny projects that no one will ever hear of. But that's not what awards are about. They're about visibility. I mean, we, you and I know this, but just the fact that there are PR companies that are hired by actors for them to get nominated. Oh, yeah. It's a fucking joke. I mean, I, the statistic I, I read, although I, I would say put a huge asterisk next to this, but often, yes, there is a specific marketing team that's trying to get you a nomination and that can go upwards of one to two million dollars per nomination that a movie gets. That's maybe true. Is the asterisk about the dollar sign? Well, you know, the asterisk is I cannot believe then that uh, everything everywhere all at once paid $22 million to get Oscar nominations no, I, for I a movie that only cost $15 million to make. Yeah, like, I don't I don't think that's the thing. The dollar amount, I would definitely asterisk. And I would definitely they're spending would, money on them. Yes. But well, I would suggest that. Like, I don't know this, but I would suggest something like everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once would not have hired a PR firm because at least in my rosy glassed, uh, uh, you know, vision, this is not a film that they thought would find an audience in the first no. place. <laughs> no, it came out in March. I don't think these are guys that think about Oscars, right? That's not a, that's not a movie, an Oscar movie normally. You brought this up last year, how A24 is just fucking taking over Hollywood. It is. Because yeah, yeah. they actually will take risks on weird films. And mm -hmm. I think as much as we discredit the American viewing public, I mean, this movie didn't do well. I, as yeah, there are people out there trying to make art. If people have been longtime listeners, you'll have heard me despair over the state of Hollywood like three or four years ago. Oh, yeah. You were so disillusioned when we started this. I mean, I'm disillusioned still to a point, but uh, but yeah, this year especially disproves my, my uh, hand-wringing from a few years ago because you have things like everything everywhere all at once 
that did amazingly well. You have um, Smile, which was an indie horror film, did amazingly well. Even some of the other smaller Best Picture nominees like The Whale and... Um, Banshees. Banshees did did pretty well in their runs. Currently, there's this, the huge thing with the second Puss in Boots movie. Oh, yeah. God, there's another movie that I'm just totally blanking on. It's out like right now. Anyways, all to say is like these smaller... Oh, Megan. That's the movie. Oh, <laughs> Megan, the, the doll, killer doll okay. robot thing. Did you watch that? I have seen it, yes. Is it good? It's decent. I don't think it's as okay. great as maybe what some people are claiming it to be, but it's uh, it's fine. You it's know, decent. You know what all this is? This is MCU burnout. I think where you were upset is that we're not forced, but we are interested in watching four superhero films a year. Mm-hmm. And now that they're even more shit, I mean, like whether they hold up as fun things at $200 million to make, they're so bad now. <laughs> And people are like, why am I spending money on it? Well, I mean, the dollar, they're still making so much money. So we'll see how fast that burnout actually happens. I I guess what my main point is, is that what was going on, why I was so crestfallen a few years ago, is that these movies I just mentioned also were not doing very well at the box office. Mm -hmm. So it seems like there is an increase. My observation, whether this would be proven true, is that studios with these kind of interesting offbeat movies just have to market them in a vastly different way than they've been doing in the past. Advertisements on TV are not working anymore because no one has television. Advertisements on YouTube and stuff like that aren't working because people click through them or they use ad blockers so they're not seeing them. So unless you're going to the movies already and see the trailer or you have to do some alternate like viral thing that people start talking about your movie and then people will go and see it. And that's what's happened with all these other ones uh, that either word of mouth is so big that it's like it's driving people to theaters or there's a viral thing that gets people into the movie theaters, which also gives word of mouth and makes people go and see it. I think YouTube advertising in the mode of releasing trailers works because that's the only reason I knew Michelle Yeoh was going to be in a new, you know, fantasy sci-fi mm-hmm. film. Because uh, I was just thinking, like, how did I find out about half of these films? And it's all on YouTube. You know, I don't necessarily watch the trailers, but as I'm flicking my thumb through, if I recognize a face or see some weird graphic or something, then I might be enticed to see the trailer in itself because purchase ads by themselves, nobody gives a shit, right? We can't. I I don't anyway. So the uh, movement away from traditional media allows us to get intellectual films up at the forefront. Maybe this is what happened in 1971. That is also something I've been reading. Again, I will believe it when I see it. When we think of the 70s, we kind of saw this in 1971, where yeah, the top 10 films were these oftentimes challenging, not happy, against the the establishment films. And that's why I think the 70s are often looked back on as like the best decade of American film. But the only reason those films are being made is because people were paying money to go and see them, right? There mm-hmm. there was a reason they were going there. They wanted to be part of the conversation. There were these new stars coming out, et cetera, et cetera. And some people are kind of predicting that there's a bubble about to burst here. But all it takes is two of the superhero films to bomb. And then you start to have like a crumbling effect throughout the industry. And then that raises up these other people and new voices and stuff. So at least for yeah. a, a five or six year period... You might get the same thing again, but we'll see. I don't know. I don't, that might be putting the cart before the horse, in my opinion. If we were more academic and studied the cultural history of what was going on in these moments, we may be able to predict. But honestly, I don't think that's true either because it's not even like modern film historians know what's going on. No, you you cannot predict the future. Nobody sat there this year and be like, oh, this indie film by these two guys with a crew of five people uh, is going to be up for a best picture. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, that's. That's not what people thought. 
Who thought Top Gun would be nominated at the Oscars? Go back to our podcast where I told you this and you're like, no, it's not going to get nominated for you Best mean before, Picture. No, before it came out. Oh, not before it came out. No, no. I'm talking about like, you know, far seeing uh, academics yeah, yeah. giving us the ability to predict culture. I listened to this podcast, it, which is hilarious. They, uh, they do this little game at the beginning of the summer to predict what the top 10 oh. grossing films of just the summer is going to be. And they all had Top Gun on their list. And this one yeah. guy had it at, I think, number two. And they all laughed at him. They're like, oh. no, it is not going to make that much money, dude. Like, it's going to make money, but it's not going to make number two at Stupid the box money. office money. Yeah. And look who's laughing now. Like, it's made the second most in the in the year. It made the second yeah. most amount of money. So If it wasn't for your uh, for your Cameron guy, it would have been the number big one. boy. I just saw two. Is it two billion? Your blue aliens? Oh, we crossed two billion last week. Yeah. I like how Kyle said we. Eh? That's on record. <laughs> we crossed. Uh, <laughs> it is a Canadian film, technically. So it's a, no. It's <laughs> James Cameron right now has three of the top four highest grossing movies of all time. And as we all know, the more money a movie makes, the better it is as a piece of art. He's just doing dunks over he knows here, what Dave. He's... he's like the Michael Jordan of making movies. This morning, Emerson asked me again about Terminator because, well, the thumb in the fire meme, or yeah. not meme, but like that scene is still prevalent in modern media. Oh, yeah. Because uh, James Cameron knows how to make movies, man. He can't write dialogue, but he knows how to make no. movies. Let's get into talking about uh, this movie, Dave, if Beale Street could talk. Uh, do you have any background with this movie? No. As I talked about last week, I know that there was this good run of young black couple dramas. The one I realized I was thinking, I thought it was uh, Queen and Slim, and sure. which I also didn't watch. So many of these stories that are coming out, because it's important to talk about how fucking weird American culture is, but uh, I haven't seen it. This is, weirdly enough, one of the movies I did see in a movie theater. Oh, wow. It was not until 2019. I think, uh, I don't know if it would have been just, it must have been just before Oscar nominations came out and this was getting Oscar buzz. Before the run. I found the one theater in Calgary that was playing it in January of 2019. Really, really enjoyed it. I really liked this movie a lot back then. So I'm interested to see how I like it this time. Uh, do you have any thoughts or feelings on Barry Jenkins, the director? I didn't watch Moonlight either. Oh, so you haven't seen Moonlight. Oh my gosh, No, Dave. I know. When that thing won, it's like my weird relationship with Wishlist right now. Uh, where I'm at in my life, I'm not in my 20s and not single. So I have to pick and choose and then I have to coordinate. So any film that's supposed to be dramatically regarded sits in my wish list until I can ferret time for myself. And then with your project, our project, that often has to siphon into some piece of shit film from 1971 that nobody wants to watch, Billy Jack. But, you know, that's okay. It's just the way that that rolls. So I haven't actually seen Moonlight either. Uh, I haven't uh, seen Green Book. I haven't seen any, well, you're gonna any of these films that people are like, why? Why? I haven't seen them. You could skip Green Book, but we aren't because we're going to be watching it probably this year. So so I will preface this by saying that the only two movies I have seen of Barry Jenkins are Moonlight and this movie. Uh, this was his follow-up. This was his direct follow-up from, from Moonlight. So this was kind of him cashing in his chips of having a Best Picture winner, the surprise Best Picture winner that had that glorious moment of live television where people are scrambling on stage because the wrong name was actually read out. Oh, is that Moonlight? Yep, because uh, they say La La Land, and it's like, nope. And then you see the producers come rushing the stage, and they're like taking the awards away, and they're like, no. <laughs> it was pretty well, great television. Uh, pretty stupid, if you ask and, me. Uh, well, blame Warren Beatty. Uh, he did make, that is on Prime, which I have not watched, is the miniseries The Underground Railroad, which is apparently oh. very, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'll be able to see his follow-up film very, very soon, which is the sequel 
to the Lion King live action movie. Oh, no. I know. But that'll probably give him money to make something good again. I, I have nothing to say. I thought you were going to say something. So I, was, I, was, I was, and then I thought, I'm going to not be angry about a film that I'm not going to watch anyways. Mm-hmm. I just hate live action remakes of uh, animated films. They don't work. Just fucking stop doing them. I know people go and watch them. Yeah, they make billions of dollars. Like, I don't need to get stop. it, really, oh. but it, they do make money. Um, last person I just wanted to briefly mention here uh, was Regina King. Do you have any mm-hmm. thoughts on Regina King? I've always liked her. I think that what's fun about her is that she not just has a wide range, but she has the kind of look that when she's happy, it's like bright. Mm-hmm. And when she's angry, you get, you can feel like she's, she's great. She's got a, a great uh, persona. Yeah. She's, she's fun to watch. There's some actresses where it's like, you're just an angry person mm-hmm. or you're too cute or whatever. And I always thought that she was, uh, she's kind of like everything. She yeah, she's always fun to see like, uh, yeah. she's in a bunch of those early John Singleton movies, higher learning and poetic justice and She's in Boys you know, in the Hood, if I remember correctly. So it's nice that uh, some actresses can build such a great career even into their middle and late age because that is not it is not common. guaranteed for for no. sure. But she's yeah, she's been around so much longer than I think people realize. Like again, started acting in the eighties. So yeah, I don't trust anything that started in the eighties. I'm excited for you to see this film for the first time. This will be my second time sitting down and watching it. So let's do that. We're going to take a small break here to thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about if Beale Street could talk. What do you think the street that's outside of your building would say if it could talk? Just stop. Just stop. That's what I would say. Just stop. Slow down, man. (laughs) My chair is squeaking for some reason, so if this completely falls and I collapse underneath my chair, you can laugh, but... Comedy. I should let you know that Conde vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Uh, has your kid ever like taken a, like a toboggan or something like that, a sled and gone down the hill? No, that one, that one goes right on to 42nd. That's a death so sentence. much fun. <laughs> I'll right. ask him next time. I'm sure he'll try it, and then Helen will... Uh, lose her mind (laughs) (laughs) this episode is brought to you by taproot spotlight a service that helps businesses and organizations pay attention to the people they serve taproot tells you the news about the people and companies that are important to you they use that information internally to keep everyone on the same page or you could share it with the world in your newsletter on your website and on your social media channels paying attention does pay dividends you can find out more at taprootpublishing.ca slash spotlight that's taprootpublishing.ca slash spotlight. Uh, yeah, if you're in Canada, you've probably heard of a telecommunications giant called TELUS. <laughs> yeah, not Rogers that is buying Shaw or well, the other way around. That's, we're fucked. Yeah, yeah. But that's Canada, right? It's all about the oligopolies I here. think it's good that there's only two huge telecommunications <laughs> networks. It's like airlines, although that actually broke. So in the next 30 years, we'll finally get some options for cellular service but for now it's telus or rogers this telus used to be clearnet or did they buy clearnet i don't remember my first in Alberta used to be called agt when i was growing up Uh, okay so maybe they bought clearnet in ontario who cares all right let's talk about their story hive so uh what it tells me to say here is kyle calling all new and emerging content creators in bc and alberta 
case you haven't heard of StoryHive, they've been supporting storytellers in Western Canada since 2013. This year, they're celebrating their 10th anniversary with their biggest edition yet. The StoryHive Anniversary Documentary Edition is funding 80 short documentaries on any local story you are passionate about. You could get $20,000 in production funding, training, and mentorship and distribution, that's a lot of ands, on TELUS Optic TV and Stream Plus. Speaking of, nobody watching TV or too many streaming mm -hmm. options. If you live in BC or Alberta and you have an idea for a short documentary, now is the time to send in your pitch. You have to send in your application by February 28th, so you need to do it now mm -hmm. at storyhive.com slash apply. Your story, Kyle, your narrative. So what are we pitching? Make one about this machine. We have applied before. Yes. <laughs> it's our time. It's our time. It's our time. <laughs> All right, Dave, we have sat down and uh, watched slash rewatched this film. So let's come up with a scenario just to get people up to date with kind of what the plot is all about. I feel like so it's going to be dangerous. Yeah, let's see what you've come up with. I was just going to say that we've had a romantic evening and we're walking down underneath an umbrella on an abandoned street and then yeah. a young a cop comes up to me and rubs his dirty face into uh, my jaw right. and tells one, one, me I need to oh, this <laughs> creepy weird policeman comes up to us <laughs> and it's like has this dvd copy of if beale street could talk and says first of all i'm arresting you but second of all what is this I don't movie like the about look your eyes what would you say in the back of the cop car as he takes us downtown the plot i mean the conceptual plot are two different things in this but the plot is a young pregnant black woman fights to get her boyfriend i guess fiance mm -hmm. out of prison for a crime he did not commit correct pretty succinct yeah it's that's true it is it does jump around a lot in the in the timeline but i don't know i think it's always pretty clear where we're where we're yeah, at yeah, and what's yeah. going on what were your thoughts on, as a first-time viewer on this movie? Yeah, I'm mostly enamored with it. I think I think it's always difficult. I mean, I've never read James Baldwin work. I've watched interviews. I, I do want to talk about him a little bit more here in yeah. a bit, but yeah, sure. So I've seen videos of him speaking and at conferences, but I've never actually read his uh, narratives or how he writes. But this is clearly, to me, very poetic and an attempt in a very all nearly successful way of visualizing, yeah, poetic language. So this film has a tempo and a tone that uh, are, for the most part, effective and uh, attractive. I, I do find that it's a little uh, maybe heavy-handed and, and overlong in certain sequences. I don't mind that it moves back and forth, but uh, it is a poignant story. It's not too had or two played out because that experience is still happening when we this weekend another young black man was killed right. by a white police officer but what i do like about it is that it's very personal and this focuses less on uh, racism and more about the family unit and has a positive underscore about uh, love and support yeah i think for me the the that feeling of love and affection basically permeates every single frame of this movie yeah. Like it really, that is really what it is focused on. Like, yes, there's a terrible crime that's happened and a wrongful conviction, but and there's sorrow and, and sadness that goes through there, but the love is what is the number one thing that's trying to be communicated through. Yeah, doing a brief read-up, 
on James Baldwin and having seen him speak in, in snippets, I've never like mm-hmm. watched a full conference I or something. I love hearing him speak, by the way. Yeah, I'm actually a big fan of him. You know, he's kind of this proto, not communist, but socialist in the sense that he believed the civil rights movement, I think, if I understand this correctly, needed to be predicated on this sense of love versus commercial success. So mm-hmm. I feel like you know, what I see in this story is that I love that scene where the two dads are in the bar and I I can't quote it, but he's basically saying like, it's not about the money. We've never had money. It's not our money. It's not even their money. What we have is our love. And even if we're poor, we've made it this far and we've raised our kids. So it's not something you should be stressed about. And that really hit home with me because I don't have any money, but somehow uh, we are raising a kid. And right. somehow we find a way to build a home life that is supportive of everybody. I don't know if it's unique. I'm going to presume in an optimistic sense that many families are trying to do this, but um, I think that was a really core message to the film. So that that and how that plays out, you know, how the dads have to go and do their hustles to try to pay for this trip. I love how human it is that Regina King ends up uh, in Puerto Rico, but fucks up because right. of her passion. You know, it's it's so real. It's not too Hollywood in the sense that like we're gonna get this release <laughs> because that hasn't happened culturally in America. Well, and, and you can see that throughout James Baldwin's writing. The, the couple of things I have read, I think he was at the center a hopeful person, but he was also a supreme realist of the moment. Right? Yeah, like, man. He was at Selma. He was. he, yeah. he saw it. He saw it, it and I, yeah. I think that in this story is like, of course, hum- humanity has this beautiful gift of like coming together and trying to do the right thing. But it's like, this is a story that takes place in the early 1960s. These people are not getting this guy out. They're just yeah. not going to. And I can't write a story where that happens because <laughs> it's just not what would happen in this story. Yeah, it's never his intent. Yeah, for sure. It's beautiful. I, my my misgivings are that it feels a bit overlong. I feel like as a poem, this it's like like a 60 minute short like short narrative that's pulled into two hours because the direction wants to be lyrical and and sure. holding certain shots and I do think the movie looks beautiful. I think that it's shot it really looks, well. Looks gorgeous in so many of those yes. shots and I think I, I I wanted to bring this up. One of the biggest things I remember really starting to read about it when this movie came out. A lot of prominent black critics were championing it because they were big fans of it but also point out the failings of other movies of not lighting black people properly. Oh yeah. Well, that's, I was going to bring that and up. And this movie finally like clicked into place about what they make. Cause I'd been reading that. I'm like, I don't know if I understand. And then when I went and watched this movie, I was like, Oh no, I get it now. Like when you actually take under consideration a person's pigment and light them properly, it's like, you can do some really interesting things instead of them falling into darkness or not being lit up well. So you can see everything that's going on. Because even in this movie, there's things that are happening in dimness and darkness, and then I can see everything that is going on. There's this really cool scene when I think it's the first time that they're making love, and it's shot in this like red light, and like they're mm. kind of underscores their passion and stuff like that. But it looks so interesting because of their lighting choices. But again, they are lighting it based on the performers, and not just being like, "Well, all white skin does this, so we're just going to light it this way," and then it not looking the greatest i wanted to call that out yeah that's the uh, problem with modern technology which is you know it's male white male centric 
So as a photographer, if you try to take a, let's say a corporate headshots and I have my camera set a certain white balance for the background right. and you know, you have the exact same lighting. If a pale white person comes in, an Indian person comes in, a black person comes in, Asian person comes in, it's fundamentally different. It's fucking weird. That felt like the setup to a really mean joke. And you actually have to do post, even though you set up in a studio to not have to do so much. Uh, in a film, it's even harder, right? Because we have three dimensional space. We have things that are constantly changing in environmental lighting. So this is definitely something we're seeing, not just because the director's black, but because there's more of an acknowledgement on, on, you know, on the craft of building this. So this thing looks great. I know I come off as a prude often, but the, the love scenes are fucking amazing in this and they work because they're placed in parts of the film where it's not about trying to show sex. It's about their passion and their relationship. And all of those scenes are so beautifully intimate. Well, I think it does underscore their relationship though, because it's such yeah. a, the centerpiece. Like they mentioned, like we knew each other as kids. We knew each other as a person first. Then we brought this into this type of relationship. And I think that other films, like other romances, what it is, it's like them, like I was going to say aggressively, but you know, it's more like, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> down and dirty having sex, which is, can be fun and stuff like that. But like, I think it's there to really, show yes there was a sexual component to this relationship but it was a very loving relationship at the same time well that's you know and this is what i've been getting at and you always make fun of me but this is sex that is making love instead of what i would call pornography which is just to just show as much ass and tit as possible to get away with it because it is violent often right mm -hmm. it may not be violent in terms of physical abuse but when sex is portrayed on film often it's violent it's aggressive it's brutal and sometimes that works if you have like a james bond film sure. where he's supposed to be a disgusting person whether we uh, admire him or not but i thought it was beautiful my criticism i suppose you know i i don't i'm never a big fan of the dead straight on portrait look it bothers me a little bit i was gonna bring this up here too yeah that, that is i think that is a barry jenkins thing where he puts them right in the middle of the frame and, and almost like they're the looking camera. at the camera down the barrel of it so yeah they're not breaking a wall but it is and this is why i felt like this is something of a poem there's something stylistic about it that if you get it you'll love it and if you don't it will just throw you off the track. You know, like I, I love spoken word poetry. If I go to a, a jam, some mm -hmm. poets, I'm like, holy shit, that was me. Some people you are like, what the fuck what am I watching? I don't know when one works and when doesn't. I, You know, it's totally personal. And for me, this didn't ruin the film. It's not like it's, uh, it's done poorly. It's just kind of was a tone change that I wasn't expecting. Right. Uh, it's so interesting watching this film now, having done our second season on 1971, where we watched a few of those black exploitation films and basically seeing the evolution of like almost 50 years of prominent black filmmakers civil rights messaging being able to tell more interesting stories. Whereas like this one still has to do with crime, but we're not talking about like pimps and gangsters in this. These are just two young people who are in love. And how I don't I know how different that feels like this isn't trying to be exploitative. It is just this is another story that we want to explore. They do happen to be black. This is important to the story, too, I think. But it's just a different type of filmography that people are, quote unquote, allowed to make now that just was not possible in 1971. Or 1982, for that matter. So I don't know if this is Barry Jenkins or James, but I, I suspect it's James Baldwin. But I've brought this up, at least in our casual conversation. I can't remember if this is on record. But of course, America has a problem with race. But this film, I think, explains something that I have heard and agree with, that it's more a 
a problem of class warfare. Mm -hmm. And in America, class warfare is embodied in the black American experience because they're just the people that are, are still enslaved to this economic issue. And they bring this up, like the couple can't get a, a flat, nobody right. will rent to them, but they're poor to begin with. And if they had shown up with a trunk full of cash, even these white supremacist landlords would have probably let them a flat. But in a capitalist market, they don't even have a chance, never mind the racism, but they don't have a fucking penny between them, right? It's all based on credit because they're like, we're hardworking people and nobody gives a shit about it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, it was a great dimension because it wasn't two dimensional. It wasn't just racism. We see so many different angles of the actual lived experience. So I thought that was... Great. I, mean, I was captivated by this movie. Everybody's so good in it, but can I make two criticisms on the casting? Like, the cop was awful. The, the cop is awful? Yeah. I think they shouldn't have picked someone who was a cartoon character because it's just too much. And the lead, I like, I I thought she was too in her head. I, I just, by the end, I couldn't follow okay, her. Okay. So, we're going we're gonna to align on this here then yeah. because that is really my only misgiving is a couple yeah. of the casting choices. Like, I think it is a little unfortunate in one way because it's like you are going right against uh, Regina King who is like nailing this role and it does such a beautiful performance, I think, through this entire thing. Um, I don't know. Is it Kiki Lane? I think is what yeah, her name Kiki. is. I don't remember her last name. Uh, Kiki Lane. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't say she's bad, but she's noticeably... She, she's a little bit more amateur feeling than everyone around her. And so it does something. There are certain scenes where like, ooh, I think that's not as impactful as I would hope it to be. It's really my only one big criticism of this movie. I was feeling like, is this her overthinking it because it's such heavy material? Or is this Barry Jenkins telling her that she needs to be almost monotone? And it's, you know, we'll never know. It sucks because she's not bad in it. And she's this beautiful young actress, et cetera. But there's something by the end that I just couldn't stay with her. Who's um, the husband or the boyfriend? Stephon uh, James, I think, or Stephen Stephon James. James. Apparently, he was on Degrassi. But oh, was he? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. He's he's amazing in this, and everybody's so good. I forget who the dad is. Like he's been in a bunch of things too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Coleman Domingo. Yeah, yeah. So good. I'll even say, even though I like the scene. The religious mother who comes to yeah, visit them is also a little overacted a little bit, or I don't even know what it is. It just doesn't feel as natural as what everyone else is doing inside that scene. So You know what I think it was? They dropped this grenade and they didn't talk about why she's insane and what happens to them after. Because it's not just her. I think if she was just this melodramatic, sick person, that's one thing. But her daughters are these acolytes and you're like, who are these cold, broken girls that they're attacking everybody and then they just leave the room and you're like i never hear from them again yeah, true that's... i mean the, again this is where you can tell it's a literary adaptation james baldwin was critical of, of religion and, and of course and catholicism specifically i'm sure that in a narrative or in a written narrative that probably worms its way they probably in had a bigger, examinations yeah, they probably had a bigger role i will say even in this movie there are they come back to that idea a few different times like when regina king goes and sees that woman Mm, who has accused him of rape, cross. Yep. but she's wearing the cross. She touches the cross. She tries to appeal to her on that level mm -hmm. and it doesn't work. I, I do think that there's supposed to be this contrast of the family unit's love and the proposed like God's love to you and which one is actually the stronger bond here on well, earth. Mean, like that's what it feels like to me is what they're trying to communicate. You know, when I think about, let's say Karl Marx or this idea of religion's impact on the state, I don't think James Baldwin is saying that 
God's love is missing because mm. so much of familial love, especially in poor culture, is uh, housed from a belief in some spiritual connection with other people. I mean, right. if anything, it's trying to contrast between the main characters, I can't remember her name anymore, but the main character's family as actually what true Christian love could look like because yes. they're so they're so uh, supportive of each other, which is technically how the text reads in the fucking Bible, people. This is the, like, it is the epitome of unconditional love, right? Like, it yeah. is like, yes, hey, this, you're having a baby, not what we would want for you, but- Your boyfriend's in jail. But we're, we're here gonna... to support you. Like, we're here to help yeah, you, man. right? And then this woman represents uh, Catholicism, which has become hateful. And I think that there is a separation. I don't think the message is that God is dead <laughs> or that, uh, you know, right. there's no hope. I think it just talks about how there is so much capacity for hate with people that only see or reference the word of God or whatever. I can't remember how she speaks. You know, she was abandoning her family. I think there was more there. And I think that's why it's so disappointing. It's... I, I actually liked, I didn't mind the actress playing it like a demon, essentially. Mm. I just wish they had set it up a little bit more. Maybe sure. we could have seen her as a mom to the child because there, there's clearly a backstory there about why he's out sure. black sheeping, uh, which is a terrible phrase in this context. But, you know, he's he's lived, a, you know, he's talking about being homeless and he's carving wood and stealing equipment so that he can, you know, build this life in some shanty, I don't know what they're living in, mm -hmm. abandoned house or whatever it is. Which like, good for Dave Franco oh, for and stepping the, yeah. up and, and helping them well, out Well, that's the other thing. I loved that scene. I mean, I know the Jewish experience in America is different than different, the African yeah. or black American one, but you know, when he references that it's us, like we have to fight against white oppression and that he wants to show his love because that's how he was raised. I love that messaging, man. It's like, yeah, yeah it's beautiful. You know, there's so much hope in this. I should admit that I did kill God. One last thing about that like religious mother scene, it, it is the, the one line that makes me break out every single time. Her daughter's saying like, she has a weak heart and then Regina King says like, she's got a weak head. That's what yeah. she says. <laughs> <laughs> Which is yeah. perfect. I like this movie a lot and I like the ending is so poignant because we don't get resolution because there hasn't been one yet in American culture. But, you know, as a film, it's like there's just too many little things where I also get pulled out of it. Hmm. Not uh, on my phone. Like, I watched the whole movie, so it's good. You, you watched the whole movie on your phone, is what you're saying. <laughs> like, the way they intended it. Her oh, and uh, The Friend is great. I loved... Oh, yeah. What's uh, his name? Uh, oh, uh, Michael God. Henry, something type. Great actor. He was just nominated uh, for Best Supporting Actor this year, actually, interestingly Not for enough. Bullet Train, I hope, but... No, uh, for uh, Causeway on Apple TV+. <laughs> I want to go and he's, watch that. Uh, he's so good. That Brian Tyree Henry, I think his name is. Moving from the jovial, cute friend, and then when so, like, he... I hate them. finally gets to the yeah the jail sequence yeah. my god you're just like he was feeling that and you're like yeah because it's not about black and white either it's just about oppression and power at that point i mean we presume it's white guards that are torturing everybody inside this facility but he doesn't talk about it in racial mm -hmm. terms he talks about suffering which i i thought was amazing too i think anybody who is a black and a civil rights activist growing up in that era had probably either been to jail or was right beside someone who was in oh, prison. Oh, sure. Like, so. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it here in a moment, but there was this documentary called I Am Not Your Negro that came out in 2016. It's about James Baldwin. I recommend everyone seeing it. I loved it. I actually watched it for the first time this week because I was I watched this movie and I wanted a little bit more information about James Baldwin. Uh, at the time of his death, he was working on a book that he only got like 30 pages in and then he passed away. Which, quick side note, the uh, publisher then tried to sue his family because he uh, did not finish his agreed-upon oh, deal. Gosh. 
So nice. great, great for them. Capitalism, baby. Yeah. That's like, I just read uh, Eva Green is suing some production company because they didn't pay her money. It's like, fuck off. Like you, you've been paid a lot of money. Uh, Your life's fine. Regardless, his book was going to be, it was like a semi-fictional, semi-realistic account. <laughs> this is where it gets weird. But he was good friends with both Malcolm X and mm. uh, Martin Luther King. And he wanted to use his observations of the two of them and how they slowly came closer together when they seemed yeah. so far apart at the beginning of the civil rights movement. So anyways, it was a really interesting outlook of, of him. But let's do some backstory here. So this movie opened up on September 9th, 2018 at TIFF. That's the Toronto International Film Festival. I remember growing up and that was such a small thing. And by the time I was moving here, it's it was huge. like the biggest fucking festival. Yeah, <laughs> It things, feels like in North America almost. Yeah. Things premiere there. Yeah. It did go wide on December 14th of 2018. Currently, it is rated 3.9 on Letterboxd. Has a 7.1 on IMDb, has an 87 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes, from 365 critics, it has a 95%, but from only 2,500 users, it has a 71%. Um, something that I want to keep track of this, because I think this might be the start of the huge discrepancy between critics and audiences about what either one of them likes. Oh, oh is that like that's more of a trend now? Well, in our previous seasons, even in 1999, there would be sometimes differences, but like five to six, seven percent, not 20 yeah. point swings. 25, I guess, in this case. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can rent it on iTunes and Google Play. And at least here in Canada, you can stream it on Netflix. Its budget was $12 million. Uh, it would go on to make at the box office $20.6 million. So not a bomb, but definitely not, not a hit. Its plot description from IMDb is a young woman embraces her pregnancy while she she and her family set out to prove her childhood friend and lover innocent of a crime he didn't commit. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, he did. He, yeah. he nailed it almost. Dave, we get to return back to everyone's favorite game. Guess, Guess that, 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 that tag. tag. I haven't done this for the Can't last couple wait. weeks because there was yeah. no taglines. So when you go into a movie theater, Dave, maybe you're going to go and see the new movie Missing, where it all takes place on a smartphone. No, never heard of it. Yeah, it's basically the follow-up to searching is what mm. it is. So it just I was going to say, on. it sounds a lot like searching. Okay, which we're watching this year too. I can't yeah. wait. How many I watch, watch that? That's also my wish list. God yeah, damn you it. see a lot of wish list movies, Dave. Yeah. Uh, there's a little message that goes on the movie poster that entices you to go and see the movie. So on this film, was the tagline, trust love all the way? Was it based on the James Baldwin classic? Or was it, these streets speak volumes. I'm going to go with three because it's an American <laughs> poster and it's well, the dumbest sounding one. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, thank you because that was my dumbest sounding one. Yeah, it's uh, pretty dumb. It actually is trust love all the way. That okay. is what it wasn't James Baldwin because there's no way people know who James Baldwin is. So I thought about like they that. Made general I, like, public. Yeah. I know who James Baldwin is, but do regular people know who James Baldwin is? I just get it on YouTube and I'm guessing it's because of all the searches we did in 1971. I am meeting a bunch of his stuff on TikTok this week. Weirdly TikTok. Enough. Yeah. yeah. The algorithm, man. This stars Kiki Lane as Tish Rivers, uh, Stefan James as Alonzo Fawny Hunt, and Regina King as Sharon Rivers. Anything else that we want to say about these actors? No, it was just fun learning that uh, Stephen James from Toronto and that he yeah. was on Degrassi. So he must know Drake. 
Honestly, that's the same super tight with Yeah, super tight with Drake, probably. Yeah. I stopped watching after Joey Jeremiah left. Although, oh, I I do like, I have to shout out, I thought it was fun that Diego Luna and Pedro Pascal are in this. Oh, so I know. So there's a yeah, yeah. Disney connection. <laughs> Huge. Like, I, I was re-watching this, like, every single one of these people that shows up for like literally three minutes and no more about to blow up went yeah. on to be like huge stars it's so funny it's like when you watch what movie is that where jack black shows up for like two seconds oh, oh it's enemy of the state he's in it with like gene oh, yeah, hackman yeah, yeah. and yeah yeah will as smith a, as, as a hacker like, or like a computer specialist why is jack black in this movie <laughs> it's like because he wasn't jack black yet that's the reason that's right well have you watched andor yet no Diego luna so Fucking good in that. Cinematography is by James Laxton. His top four in IMDb are this movie, Camp X-Ray from 2014, Moonlight from 2016, and The Underground Railroad from 2021. So he likes to work with Barry Jenkins. He's good. The movie looks very pretty. Yeah, gorgeous. Uh, maybe the new uh, Lion King movie will be just as gorgeous, Dave. I loved watching this for the color grading because it's not this like oversaturated shit that you see like it's just it's it pops it's colorful i mean it can work depending on what film you're you're doing but i find so much stuff feature films mostly desaturated like way too flat looking most of the time and i don't, well, I don't know you I'm also a watch fan. a lot of depressing movies so i don't know i think yeah. that's a thing i think it was just too extreme like when like thor love and thunder i know you didn't yeah, like that's it but that's like but... that's like a yeah candy popcorn sweet mm -hmm. film and and does it on purpose but it's just it's overwhelming right but this yeah. one has uh beautiful rich colors but you don't get tired of looking all right let's keep going based on the novel by james baldwin screenplay by barry jenkins and of course directed by barry jenkins so if people don't know james baldwin is a hugely influential author and thinker um, i already mentioned i am not your negro is a good primer on him we do not have enough time to go into his entire history although i'd love to kind of the big things you need to know is that yes was kind of at the forefront of speaking about the civil rights movement but at a pretty early age like in his 20s he left the u.s he went to go and live in paris it's black for being a communist yeah <laughs> i think i think one of his big things if I, I don't want to mischaracterize him but he's like he felt that there needed to be someone from an outside perspective looking at it instead of it being like right in the middle of things but regardless oh uh, the civil rights movement yeah well i i just think changed i mean he was never in the closet in a time when we've learned people were chemically castrated yeah, and thrown yeah. in prison for being gay and he's black and he's an intellectual. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, how many strikes, right? I mean, like, it's amazing he came the, back. In the documentary, like, of course you would know this, but it's like the FBI had a file on him. Like, yeah, the, all oh, three of these things were like... That's what I wanted to bring up. Uh, yeah. well, they talk about a page count. Hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. If I can find it before the end of the episode, sure. I'll, I'll give it but to you. But they had like a novella about just him, is what you're trying to say? Not. It was uh, a Bible. It was... Wow. Oh, I'm almost there. Hold on a second. All right, I'll find it. It, it. it compares him to some big actual criminals, and it's like five times the number of documents. <laughs> I have files on both of you that are well over 500 pages each. He did write both fiction and nonfiction. If Beale Street Could Talk was his fifth novel, but his 13th book overall. It was published in 1974, and it was the first time that he centered a love story solely between two black people. That's kind of like the big thing about this book. The book's name is taken from a blues song called Beale Street Blues. Um, I'm going to layer in part of that song right now so people can listen to oh. it. But there's a great movie. Copyright strike. The Ella Fitzgerald sings it. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's, it's a great song. And many 
gather is pretty much the same as it appears here in the movie. Baldwin, in an, in an interview at the time, was asked about the themes uh, generally, and this is what he uh, replied with. He says, every poet is an optimist, but on the way to that optimism, you have to reach a certain level of despair to deal with your life at all. And that's kind of what was the impetus to make this book. Also kind of a good encapsulation of his entire work of what I've read. Barry Jenkins, as we said, was fresh off directing the best picture of Moonlight only a couple years before, decides to cash in his chips and make this his passion project. But to be honest, there's not a whole lot written about the making of this movie. It, it, there's not a whole lot of stuff. However, Too new. there are a ton of videos on YouTube that you can watch with the actors and some of the behind the scenes people talking about the process of making this movie, uh-huh. which I definitely recommend going and watching. I only watched a few of them. I'm going to recommend the one that of Regina King, who basically goes in deep about how she thought about the role, about her character, how she dress, speak, act, what types of wigs she would wear. Like she went into it about like how this character would probably behave. Um, and there is that one moment of her being center frame of her putting on the wig and then taking it back yes. off again, where she speaks about what's going through her mind and what she was trying to communicate. And it's very interesting <laughs> just to I hear her process. Yeah. I was surprised by that scene. You know, when she does that, I thought this is going to signify that she's going to approach this woman as herself. But then the next scene she's wearing the wig. So I, I was kind of, uh, put well, off by that too. Right? Sort of, yeah. I mean, she she talks about that. It's like the wig absolutely is her armor. She has to suit up in order to go and talk to this person. Anyways, yeah. So I, interesting. I found the page thing. Uh, it's not criminals. It's to other communists, but it's pretty interesting. They had 1,884 pages Jesus. collected on James Baldwin. But as a comparison, Truman Capote had 110. <laughs> that's, that's weird, right? It's yeah, like uh, yeah. they worked hard to discredit a black gay intellectual. Uh, Dave, he's a gay black person who reads <laughs> books. So I don't know. I, I don't trust this guy. And a communist. I mean, he's fucked. It's amazing. I, I'm amazed that he was allowed back in the country. Yeah. Uh, it was filmed during the summer and fall of 2017. Uh, does get released to generally favorable reviews, but doesn't pick up a lot of steam at the box office. Would be nominated for three Academy Awards that year. Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Supporting Actress for Regina King. Uh, King is the only one who won an award that night for this film. Definitely go and watch her acceptance speech. It's great. It talks about James Baldwin at the very beginning, too. So That's it's great. Good. I just, I love Nina Simone. And I think that every movie should have at least one, one Nina Simone one Nina song. song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you watched her documentary about Nina Simone? That was on Netflix many years ago. I don't know if it still uh, maybe is. Maybe not. But, yeah, I'm not sure. But uh, she, she got very bitter at the end of her life. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, it's all artists. They have a troubled mm-hmm. relationship with, with trauma and experience. I mean, otherwise, how could you make art, right? For her to grow up, pre, during, and after. I mean, she lived till Ella Fitzgerald too. They lived into their like 80s. Like these are not young women that died, like, Mm -hmm. you know, of addiction or something. They saw all of it through. So I can imagine that she just didn't want to give a fuck by the end because 
Yeah, it must be exhausting. I'm exhausted every week listening to you too. Anything else you want to say about this movie? I think we covered all the main thematic things. There's only two things, like very small things, to be honest. Well, one really small thing and one just comment I wanted to make was that uh, at the very end, it says for Jimmy, which I'm assuming is for James Baldwin, but I couldn't verify that. But that's what I'm assuming. Yeah, I presume that too. That's what yeah. they meant. Did he meet him? No. James Baldwin died in the 80s, 87 right? 87 or something, I think, is when James Baldwin passed away. So I can't maybe imagine. The, maybe the family asked. I mean, he, they did have to get permission from the James Baldwin estate to make this yeah, movie. But, interesting. Uh, the other one is the uh, perfume scene, which is, again, mm. that other, like the oppression of the white establishment. It's like crazy, right? Holy shit. Interesting. I want to know if that was completely just a made up thing by him. Or if he had someone he knew that worked in the perfume counter, because it feels like a very lived-in experience, which is like, yeah. this is how the black women smell the perfume, how the white women smell the perfume, how black men smell the perfume, and then how white men smell the perfume. And it's so fascinating. It's just a character sociological yeah. study. It's like, is it factual? Is it allegorical? The white guys look you in the eyes and like bring your hand up to their... Anyways, I thought it was fascinating just to set and the it's, tone. It's like the... How I view sex scenes in a lot of movies. I mean, how violent at the end is the white man grabbing her hand and then mm -hmm. like saying thank you and leaving? I mean, it's just so gross. I think that's a great insight. You know, even how the white women sneer a little bit when she's hired, but when she's having labor pains, they're rushing to help her. You right. know, there's still compassion, empathy somewhere buried in that. And that's not about gender, but they're portrayed this way. But the white men in this film are just cold automaton. Mm -hmm. you know cruel robots it is weird though that that is how we first met i grabbed your hand i smelled it <laughs> at the coffee shop uh i do uh, also appreciate that you know in the spirit of this film they do not go into the prison which i think could distract yeah. Yeah, from yeah. the theme of love because it, it is so cruel in prisons too i mean they do bring up the experience anecdotally from the people that have been in there but even when uh, Fonzie's beat up and he appears broken before her, they don't talk about whether it's prison guard or other inmate or, you know, because he's a fighter, like if he instigated a fight. I mean, you see him vacillate between uh, pride and fear and all that kind of stuff. I did appreciate that in the end because some films can get so dark, man. Yeah. I mean, that I think is why I like the ending so much, like that very final scene with the chips and the, the family unit that's there. Cause Didn't you feel like you wanted to know what the kid drew? Yeah. But uh, it's pretty good that we don't. There's a huge, uh, someone has decided to use a, a snowblower outside right now. So I'm nice. sure that's getting picked up on the microphone. I, I'm sure there's a YouTube video that says this is what was on the picture the kid drew. Oh, probably. Because they freeze framed it. It was a setup to <laughs> Iron Man 5. and Because uh, um, there's the voiceover that, that, that Tish is saying that he took a plea deal, which means that he's going to get out yes. of prison earlier. Still going to be, but he's still going to be in there for a while, now, right? Yeah. So I mean, the kids five or six, five by or six. Yeah, yeah. We're done here. All right. Well, the uh, machine has told us that we do have to wrap things up here as the snowblower gets more and more loud right outside my window, which is great. It's so good that that snowblower has decided to go off right at this very moment. This does bring us to Critics' Choice. So I brought up two critics that at the time of what they thought about this movie. The first I picked is from Slate.com, a reviewer named Inku King, who writes, 
Jenkins's inclination to gamble on unknown actors pays off once again. Lane's natural openness is a perfect fit for this tale of innocence colliding with calamity. The more experienced James is able to demonstrate his range as institutionalized cruelty chips away devastatingly quickly at his equanimity. But it's the wondrously understated King who perhaps walks away with the film, revealing ever new layers of decency and kindness. In the movies, love is cheap. It's everywhere and nowhere, too often reduced to a formula or a reward. Beale Street knows better. It restores to love, romantic and familiar, a sanctity, an ambition that makes it more of the most distinctive love stories in recent memory. That's never more evident than in the early moments when Tisha's mother happily toasts her daughter's out-of-wedlock pregnancy, or in the gleaming sex scenes where Tish and Fanny remove their white clothes and hold themselves defenseless against the other. And it's the same love that allows Tish and Fanny to let themselves be pushed into an unknown future because persisting in hope is the most powerful way they know how to love. So that's what she wrote. The other person that I picked was Reggie Ponder, who uh, had a video about this, so I transcribed his like, last uh, sum-up statement, and he said, If Beale Street could talk, it would tell you that love lives in the black community, that hope survives in those relationships, that justice does evade righteousness, but in the end, family still bonds that community. This is a beautiful film. All the things that we said, too, hopefully, that was communicated. I really like this film with a few misgivings. That's basically what it comes yeah. down to. Yeah. So Dave, does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Yes and yes. I mean, hold up is a hard one for this one. We'll see stylistically if people care about such a lyrical, uh, affected visual. This is what we kind of said about like Yorgos Lanthimos last week for the favorite. I think it does in a way depend on like what the rest of Barry Jenkins's career. This yeah. feels so much like a film from a popular director that in 20 years people go like, you know what is a great film that no one talks about? Is this mm -hmm. their second or third film that mm -hmm. got like overshadowed by his bigger films that he directed? But this is like the, the hidden gem that people should check out from his filmography. I feel like that's what this film will grow into eventually. I hope that culturally it'll resonate. My worry with polarization currently in politics is that we are now in violence or submission mode in every aspect of politics. That a movie like this, which has, in my opinion, a stronger message, is going to be lost, right? And mm. people don't talk about this film anymore, Kyle. No. Uh, and I think it's because... But it's only been five years. We've seen other films that have grown... Over well, time. I, I think the, I know, I'm I'm worried and cynical that the message is too peaceful. It'll be misinterpreted as giving up. Whereas you know the beauty of this love that uh, James Baldwin or Barry Jenkins is trying to focus on is kind of getting lost in this cacophony of fucking Oscar gossip, mm. uh, hate speech, and war. I mean that's always been the problem with the uh, mass media, but it's too bad. Well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave, VS the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel. And if you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. And something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Uh, so Dave, what are you going to rate if Beale Street could talk out of five? 
This is a tough one for me because I think thematically it's a five, but I, I'm just trying to measure how much I'm deducting just from the awkwardness of some sure. of the small minor pieces. And I don't want to sound too petty. Yeah, I don't know. I'm going to ask you to go first, Kyle. Influence my number. Where, where are you going with this? Because I'm treading. I really love this film. I loved it when I first watched it in a theater. I loved it again on a second rewatch. Like I do agree that there could probably be some a little bit of pruning, not much, maybe a couple minutes throughout the entire runtime just to make this feel better. A couple of those acting performances don't do it for me, but still, I'm a big fan of this movie, so I'm giving it a 4.5. Yeah, you know what? I, I'll stay there because I don't want to sound too petty. I, I did enjoy this movie. I'm going to stick with a 4.5 too because I think I was coming in at a 4, but you know, the more we talk about films like this, we fill it up with our personal reflection rather than uh, worrying about some obtuse things. So that's got to resonate. I got to make a stand for people being nice to each other. So great. Let's uh, go for now. This yeah. is, uh, it's performing better than I thought it was going to. So we've only talked about two films here this year, Dave, I realize, but it's going to enter our list at the new number one position. It's because you're wrong about the favorite. Right above the fine. favorite. Yeah. I know. I'm going to get you, right over the coals it. this entire year. <laughs> As the favorite drops further and further and people get angry, it's like, why'd you give it the 3.5? It should be way higher. 3.5 is so low for you. It's amazing how much you hated it. It's crazy. <laughs> That's nearly <laughs> hate for you. That's nearly not, a hate for you. I do not hate that movie. I love a lot of that no, movie. I just don't no. like the way it 3. looks. 3.5 is... I don't like the way it looks. That's like fighting really hard to uh, succor some some uh, some audience votes because it means that you probably actually felt it was like a 2 it sounds mm -hmm. like you're upset watching. Okay, let's not fight Throwing about it, things Dave. at your TV. We don't need to fight about it. Okay, let's see what we're watching here next week. I'm going to push this button. Oh, I guess we're going to continue fighting about it. We're going to watch Ding Ding Creed 2 is what we're going to watch uh, next week. In my opinion, the lesser of the two creeds. Not as good as Creed 1. I did watch that recently during COVID. Not recently, recently, but I remember actually not liking it. So we'll see. We'll see yeah. how we we'll go. See what the, I remember. I have no, you know, to that point, I have no interest in Creed Three. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I do. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally going to be watching that, which is only coming out in a couple weeks, actually, is from it, now. So. Is it basically Drago? No, it's basically doing the Rocky Three thing. It's doing like the B.A. Baracus thing. Oh, is it? Is what Creed Three I saw is? Because the... this is the remake of Rocky Four. Is basically what Creed Two is. Yeah, I saw. Oh, that's true. This is Rocky Four. This is the one with Drago in it. Mm -hmm. No, because I saw Jonathan Majors in it and I was like, there's just this machine that's going to appear. Gigantic. Like, yeah. Oh my and God. And it's just going to punch holes through walls. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It's Rocky III because he's the, the ghetto guy who's left by the wayside because he went to jail. Is that right? Yeah. That's basically what yeah. it sounds like. I, I liked him in Loki. I know you didn't like that show, but nope. I, I think he's a great actor. Oh, I think Jonathan Majors is an amazing yeah. actor. I just didn't like that show. Um, all right. Well, um, I don't know. You figure out something to end the episode on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't even make up a story this year. I know, We're just I didn't. hanging out. So, uh, yeah, let's just keep hanging out, mm -hmm. watching films as we are. We're not even in 2018. We can't even pretend COVID isn't here. So, I know. it's just fucking lazy writing. Lazy <laughs> writing. <laughs> you know what podcast isn't going to get nominated for a Best Original Screenplay Award? This one. <laughs> I should admit that I did kill God.